in college I was in Twelfth Night and at the end of Viola's, I played Viola her like ring speech, there was one set of hands clapping in the audience, in like a huge audience, and it was my mom, and not even my dad. You know, who was literally next to her could like manage. I'm Eric Ostro, and this is Live at the Lortel, a podcast all about off-Broadway theater. Each week we give our listeners unique access to theater makers currently working off-Broadway. Please visit our website, liveatthelortel.com, where you can find a list of upcoming guests and reserve tickets for our live recordings. All tickets are free. At the end of each podcast, we provide an opportunity for our audience to ask questions. If you can't make a recording, you can submit a question via Twitter. Just tell us your question and who it's for using the hashtag AskLiveAtTheLortel. We will try our best to get your question on the show. Okay, without further ado, uh, help me welcome our guest, Rebecca Tashman. Thank you for coming. Thank you for doing this. It's an honor to be here. I'm a big fan, and I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. Yeah, I feel like I know you already very well. It's very just nice. These ten minutes. Ditto. So we always start in the same spot. We start talking about what you're working on currently. You're working on Sing Street, which is at New York Theater Workshop, November 25th to January 19th. Talk a little bit about it, what it's about, what it's based on, etc. So Sing Street is based on a film of the same name by John Carney. You guys may have heard of John Carney for many reasons, but amongst them, his film Once. He also, if you guys recently saw this, a really wonderful series on Amazon Prime called Modern Love, based on the New York Times series. That's also by John Carney. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's a film by by John that I just happened to see a while ago, a couple years ago, right after it came out. And I was just, I just was so profoundly moved by this movie. You know, as the credits rolled, I mean, literally as the credits rolled, you know, and I was sort of ugly sobbing. I wrote, this is very unpoetic or romantic, but it's the truth. I wrote uh, an email to my agent just saying, you know, if there's any world in which it was viable to consider trying to figure out how to put this film on stage, I would dearly, dearly love to do that. And it was for several reasons, because I thought the story itself is a profoundly moving and meaningful one, and also because I thought that the material itself would just translate beautiful onto the stage. The plot is about a group of kids, mostly kids in uh, 1980s Dublin, who are in a Christian Brothers school. It's sort of like a profoundly violent and pretty broken society and culture that these kids are growing up in. And it's sort of about really everybody that we meet in this piece sort of trying to find their way in a really, really messed up world. And these kids manage to do it through forming a band and writing music and really expressing themselves. And it is sort of in a place that conspires against self-expression. So I guess the piece is about many, many things, but maybe at its dead heart, I would say, this idea that sort of even if you're in a, and we may all relate to this in various ways right now, like a a very, very broken place, that it's sort of how you choose to move through that and express yourself through that is, you know, profoundly meaningful and important, and it celebrates that, the courage of these kids. What they need to do to get through the hard times and what what we all need to do to wade through what's going on. Somehow... You know, not like it's to to survive it with love and passion and some kind of belief or, you know, like really tr- finding how to express yourself in a place that really, you know, it's a, like a real depression right then. We're talking like real, real, like 40% unemployment and the church is laying down heavy on everyone. And that just, it's like a very, very, the culture is repressed in a certain way and very violent in another way. And I don't want to say it's really only about the kids because it's about a whole, it's about a couple of different generations of people growing up in that society. But the kids sort of finding their way against a lot of odds to making music 
and to expressing themselves, to finding that sort of there's some, there's some key to unlocking how you survive in art making. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's sort of, it celebrates that and not in a simple way, in a deeply complicated, very, very human, profoundly moving for me way. So it's interesting to me because many of the things you've worked on have come from their sources sort of grown mm-hmm. somewhere mm-hmm. within you and you, you saw this movie and so how did it, you call, you wrote your, the email to your agent and you said, if at all possible and then what was the next move? Did so then, I mean, I was so lucky that it was Barbara Broccoli who had the rights to the film. So really astounding wonderful producer and she she and I met and I just you know immediately fell in love with her completely and then I went to to Dublin to meet John Carney and we spent maybe four days or so together just you know I think walking through the streets and going it's all set or it's largely set in the school called Sing Street and we went to that school and sort of wandered the halls and I asked him tons of questions and I think by the end of that trip, he felt that I loved his story and I cared about it. I would be a, a loving caretaker of it. And at the end of the trip, he said, it's yours to me. You know, that really for me was a dream come true. Really, I just had, I, um, I longed to help figure out how to translate it and how to sort of keep that story going. Then we started to, you know, find our family members to figure out how to translate it onto the stage. Your creative team. Yeah. To, to, put, to put together. <laughs> Otherwise known right, as. Right, right, your family, right. So when you watch the movie for the first time to where you are now. I think that the film came out in 2016 and I think that was, you know, it's funny, last, just last night I was, I was looking to see what the f- date of that email that I wrote to my agent mm-hmm. was. I couldn't find the original one, but I think the one that was after it was August 2016. So it's, that was sort of the beginning of this, like, grand adventure, years, yeah. Right. So that's pretty actually quick. Between, yeah, yeah. And in terms of the cast ranges from how old to or age range. So you have a, people that are playing young, very yeah. young adults in how old are the, the young people? So there is... Uh, casting it was an odyssey. It was unbelievably difficult. It took a very long time. Really, really hard to find. Especially the young people who could do this tremendous range of things. They all have to really, truly be able to play instruments. Mm-hmm. You know, really sing. Really be able to act. And feel Irish. So that's sort of both. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a really big, a long list order. of complicated yeah. things to be able to do. Um, and we have found these incredible young people, but it was not easy to find them. So the youngest guy in the cast is 16, and he's in, he's like a, he, to me, he's like a miracle of nature. Like, how does that kid even exist? I mean, I, was, I look at him and think, like, he's exactly the person I was looking for, but I didn't think, because it's one thing, it's very difficult, I can only imagine, you know, to cast the film. But then to cast, to find people who could do this on stage every night, sort of the skill set you need to play it live, to, to perform it repeatedly, to vocally sort of reach a, you know, fill a room, all those things, it's a very different set of skills to find in young people. I'm just astounded by them and I just, I love them so much, you know, watching them, I'm learning a lot from them. So they're sort of, he's the youngest, and then a lot, most of them are more like 18 or 19. So while we're here and we're talking about it, I usually ask these questions of, of directors, is when you go into the audition room, and obviously this was an odd circumstance because you're looking for very young people, but yeah. for the most part when you're going in to auditions, what, what are you looking for in your room from, from your actors and even your whole creative team that, that's in there? Well, in auditions, first of all, I think... I really do believe that auditions can be a tiny act of violence if you're not careful. Like in each one, you know, one after the other, like repeated tiny acts of violence. So I feel very, very conscious always of being, or I try to be, you know, extremely loving and kind. And I just think, you know, actors are so vulnerable in that circumstance. So to try to make people as best you can in a very kind of, I think fundamentally not safe, 
feeling environment feel make people feel as safe as I can. And hopefully that there's some learning on both sides, no matter what it is. You know, something happens when you're in a room together. I think the thing, the thing that I'm hoping for is just to be moved. You know, but it took a little while to learn that. Like I made some really, I made one huge, big, did I say huge and big? <laughs> Tells you how I really feel about it. Um, mistake, casting mistake when I was really young. And from that I learned, I had sort of an idea of what the person, the character should look like. And this wonderful, wonderful actor came in who didn't look like that at all and I, I kind of, didn't, I wouldn't cast that person, and it was really wrong. And now I'm sort of always, I just feel like I'm looking to be deeply moved. And if I am, and it's not what I thought I was looking for, it doesn't matter. It's interesting though, because in your head, you, you're obviously with a play for a long time, you're, you're doing all your pre-work on it, and then you get into the audition room. I mean, it's hard without an imagination, especially an artistic imagination, to not kind of have a picture of something, what that looks like. Right, well, I mean, I certainly, I mean, I, say, I don't mean to say that in a, in a glib way because it has to be within certain constraints. It's not like, you know, you, there's how you cast something and the meaning, uh, the meaning of the play gets, or the piece gets released, you have to, I have to caretake. But um, within a kind of, you know, a reasonable framework, which generally, you know, a great casting director is kind of always working within that framework. I just find that it's, it's best not to be rigid or sort of, for me, sort of stuck in an idea of what I think something should be. Also, you can be so surprised and, you know, in a really, really thrilling and exciting way if you're open to it. How prepared do you like your actors to be before they come in for a first audition for you? And I think the best auditionees, which is, I think it's like a skill unto itself, and it doesn't necessarily translate. You know, it's a really hard thing to be able to do. Very specific thing. Know how to, like, deeply prepare, and which I also, also makes me sad because it's this tremendous amount of work with no compensation, which is hard to ask of people. Um, but prepare well, so you kind of really know the material. Not, I'm not talking about memorize it, but that you've, you, you have a sense of what how what you feel about it and how it is that you want to attack it and that you kind of have made choices and then that you're prepared to totally let them go completely. And that's, like sometimes there are people come in and they do something that is totally radically, I use air quote wrong, you know, wrong in the sense that it's not what I'm looking, I'm looking to find. But it's so intriguing and exciting to me that somebody came in with the sort of you know, having really found something that I'll use often, not always, but often want to go like, okay, let's, can we just try, like, just totally come from the opposite end of that idea. So you like to work, obviously, with them when they, when they come in, if they have an idea. You'll spend a little time with the actor to see if they can take direction or see, I mean, sometimes you're, you're bringing in actors that you don't know at all, right? Especially yeah, often, for this, because often, right? Yeah. And then yeah. you like to see if you want to spend time with them or if this is someone who I can spend 12 weeks with, et cetera. Yeah, or who also who responds to my way of thinking, you know, who gets excited by or um, inspired by, you know, who sort of like can understand what I'm after. That's kind of more about that, like, do, do we, can we make sense to each other? I don't think I've been in an audition where I was really excited about somebody and not, I mean, ask most actors who've auditioned with me and then been cast probably like, oh my God, she wouldn't leave, you know, I was in there for 25 minutes, like, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it's a, it's a process, because I really do like to, um, I just like to get to know each other. I also sometimes, there are points there have more and more over the last while where I, I go, I know we're gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wanna cast this person and now I'm doing some preparation for the process because I'm not gonna necessarily get to do it. So I'm sort of laying down some ideas that I'm hoping they'll kind of marinate on. You know, that has happened anyway. Obviously you're very excited about this. Yeah. Uh, again, um, <laughs> November 25th, to January 19th, New York Theater Workshop. Look it up, get the tickets. Let's go back a little bit. The time goes so, so quickly here. Yeah. And I definitely want to take some time for Indecent. Yeah, please. Oh, thank you. 
You know, I'll talk about my point of view uh, for about a half hour about it. I, I, uh, I like it. I'm going to sit back with a drink. Yeah, it's, it is one of my favorite plays and one of my favorite theater experiences that, that I've ever had in, in New York in my whole life. Uh, wow. Something about that, about the heritage, and we were talking about our, our Jewishness before, uh, something about it hit me very hard. And I think the other thing that hit me about it was the ensemble mm-hmm. piece and um, the different parts that everybody played. And okay, tell me if it's going on too long. I'll, just small. I'll cut you off, no worries. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. So a long, long, long time ago, I was looking for a piece to do in grad school and happened upon the story of the trial in a book by Elisa Solomon that I was reading and uh, was surprised I hadn't heard of it, so read the play God of Vengeance. I don't know how many of you, but anyway, Indecent is based on a play called God of Vengeance that was tried for obscenity in the 20s in New York. And I was working at that time with a really wonderful dramaturg named Rebecca Rugg, and we kind of looked at each other and said, how interesting would it be if we could find the transcript of the obscenity trial? And we called the law library, I was a student at Yale, and they were like, come on down, we've got it. So we left the library with, you know, (laughs) some massive transcript. And then, like, thus began this, like, decades-long obsession with that story of what happened to the play. And so I, just to, for our listeners, so if, if they don't know, yeah. the, the trial was... So it was, it's a, in God of Vengeance, this I think I can by now do quickly. Yeah, I, I mean, I Tell so. me if it's not fast. <laughs> but it tells the story of a, oh God, I haven't done this in a long time, of a brothel, of, of, of a, a family who lives above a brothel. And the, the husband slash pimp runs the brothel, which is in the basement, and he's obsessed with the piety of his young daughter and sort of trying to protect her in every way he possibly can from the sins below. And of course, that the young girl finds her way into the basement and she falls madly in love with one of the women prostitutes. That's enough said. I mean, I won't say the end of the piece, but it, but it, but it you know, lesbians, prostitutes, it questions the wrathful nature of God, a hypocritical piety. It was like a young playwright who was like, <laughs> I'm going to throw like every incendiary thing he wrote it in 1907 in Poland, you know, into this play. So it it had a it had a really interesting life in New York, um, where it opened on Broadway in 23 after have, 1923 after being a great success downtown for a long, long time off Broadway. Yeah, it played for a very long time very off Broadway, long time. and it was sold out every yeah. night. Yeah, right? and and really around Europe too. And then the minute it opened on the Great White Way. Everybody was, you know, arrested that night, basically, and tossed in jail. So the police were waiting backstage for the actors and the playwright, and they... You know, weirdly, it's a really interesting thing. They didn't arrest the playwright. I don't... It's a totally fascinating detail about it. The people that were charged were the producers and the actors, so for I mean it's an interesting thing the the writer was not playwrights get away with everything. <laughs> yeah, he didn't. He he was not implicated. So. So I, you, you you got the play. I for happened what you upon were the story, and then at, at Yale when I was, I was a student, sort of it housed the papers of the writer, the Sholomash who wrote the play got a vengeance, and also of the attorney who represented it in court, who was also one of its producers. So I was amidst the. I was amidst the real paper, you know, the original documents. And I think those three years of like, I just breathed it all in. I felt like I, I had inherited this story and I had to caretake it somehow. And then fast forward a long, 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 long time. I tried to make a piece out of it that didn't work. So you, what, you, you tried to write it yourself. Is I that tried. Yeah. I'm no Paula Vogel, right. needless right. to say. <laughs> um, and it was called The People Versus the God of Vengeance. It basically interwove transcript of the trial with text of the play. So there was actual trial in your play? Yes. Okay. And then a long time later, I finally convinced a theater, actually it was Bill Rausch at Oregon Shakespeare Festival, to offer a commission. And then had the audacity to call Paula, which seemed crazy to me. What were the chances she would say yes? But I had barely finished the sentence, and she said yes. So it turned out she had a kind of equivalent passion for God of Vengeance. Oh, I see. Um, and knew of the play and was interested at that point in her life and working on something very collaboratively. And then it was eight years later. It, took, it was a long, long, beautiful process to, to make it. 
So it took eight years from the time you asked, from the time you, you finished Yale. I think Yale, so. Or, oh, no, no, oh, no, that, no, no. Sorry, eight years from the phone call to Paula. Oh, okay. Oh, so, we're talking decades. All right, so a very <laughs> a long, long time. long time. So you, so between the time you worked, you started working on, which was your your first year as a playwright. Right, at, uh, director. At grad school, director, sorry. Director, to when you not finished the play, but let's say you finished your run on Broadway. How many years between that time and your closing night? It's like 18 years. So it was, it was a very, I mean, it was an obsession. It really did become an obsession for me. Where do you think the obsession came from? I mean, where do you, why did this piece speak to you so loudly and profoundly? Why, why did you feel like you, you took ownership of it and knew you had to put it out there in the world? Why is that, you think? I think, I, I mean, I, there, well, first of all, my, you know, as we were talking about before, my family, my family's history entwines with the history of this story very deeply. So that's one obvious thing. So the Polish? Yeah, I mean, uh, sort of, you know, my grandfather was like a, was a Yiddish poet. Most of my family came originally from, from Poland. And, um... It just was in my blood. It felt like it was in my blood. And then there was just, I really think it was for me, the like sitting with those original papers. So I was with their letters and I felt them. I felt those people deeply, the people that had gone through this. And I just felt like their sto- this story had been lost and was going to be lost to history and that it was a, it was a important and powerful one. I had stumbled upon it and that I had the responsibility. I never dreamed, by the way, that it would be, you know, going around the country as it is. I mean, it's an incredible thing. But I, I remember feeling at the, in the back of the theater at, on the first preview at Yale, which was the first place we did it. I just, I couldn't believe it. I was sort of like, however many hundred, maybe it was 400 people, know this story. As soon as it ended, it's like, they know this story. They didn't know it an hour and a half ago. And I did think that night, like, if that was it, if this was it, it would have, like, been all worth it already. Just that I had been wanting this story to be told. And where it is now, I mean, you ended up taking home the Tony Award for Best Director. I had to throw that in there because I think that's pretty... <laughs> and I believe, I mean, there was, there was so much focus, I believe, and... I hope I'm not overstepping my bounds, that, that you were, I don't know, the seventh or eighth woman director to, to win uh, a Tony Award for, for direction, as opposed to, I mean, for me, just focusing in on the piece and, and what you did and what you and Paula created here and what you beautifully put together. And there was so much focus on, you know, the woman stuff. And speaking of which, I, I wanted to ask, where you think women in theater are today, like what kind of shape you think it is? Is it better? Can it, I mean, obviously it could always get better, but I'd, I'd love your point of view on it. In some ways, yes. You know, compared to when I started doing this as a director, it is a different landscape to a degree, and that is re- very real, and, I, and it's important to recognize that. Things have changed, and they continue to. On the other hand, it's an ast- if you actually just look at facts, numbers, like cold, hard numbers, there's just no denying. It's, the inequity is extreme and, um, and kind of just unjustifiable and, and, and needs to change. And that just, we all sort of have to, you know, stand up to do that together. And I would say, you know, it's racial as well as gender inequality. Um, that really needs like the whole community in kind of a radical way to go like this doesn't make sense. Where our, I think it was Rachel Chavkin. I loved her what she said so much. A failure of the imagination. You know, we're supposed to be in the business of imagination. So, like, <laughs> come on, let's change it. You know, and we can just do that. We can just choose to do that and do that. I understand that it is very hard, largely I think because people, because especially when you're talking about a certain amount of money and you know, that people get scared, people want to work with people they know and they've worked with before and breaking through that is, is really, really hard to do. 
Um, and I, I wouldn't want to underestimate how, how challenging that is, but also emphasize strongly how incredibly important it is, even to the future of the, you know, theater, um, that we really, like, just force it to happen, I think. What's interesting to me about the play, it had a very successful run off-Broadway, and then went to Broadway, and bam, you know, the lights went out, the, everybody was arrested except the playwright. I mean, such horrible things happened. And then you had a very successful run. What was that like for you to kind of go from off-Broadway to being kind of catapulted to a successful run on Broadway, a Tony Award, a lot of accolades, and all of a sudden you're going to Tony luncheons. You you know, it's obviously you're always an artist, but you know, you're dressing up for things now. You know what, I, it's, a, it's like, it's day and night. Things are, are, can be very different up there in the Great White Way as opposed to, to down here. And they're both incredible, don't get me wrong, but I'm interested what, what that was like for you. I mean, it was, you know, this whole thing about trying to make sense of a life as a director was, was very, very, very hard and took a long, long, long time. Not that I'm done, but you know, but it like, it was, it was, I often, I remember feeling very strongly like there was a key to a gate and I just didn't have the key and I couldn't figure out how to get it. I just, I was like, it felt that way. Like it was locked for a long time. You know, I often would ask myself, what else could I do? You know, could I be a therapist? I don't like to sit still that long, you know, like what other business could I be in? But like, you know, I really, it was, the price tag was high. So it was a big uphill climb. And part of that I think was, you know, many, many, many layers of things, but engender is one piece of it. And it's just also really hard business. Just it's tricky to kind of find your way in it. So it sort of felt like a surreal dream and to a certain degree that what happened around Indecent, what happened around that play, of all the things, you know, that it was something, what I sort of just told you guys, the history of it, it was never kind of like, I'm gonna make a commercial thing. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna make this thing that's like, oh, gonna get to Broadway. I mean, that was sort of never the dream, which is maybe, I don't know, a very meaningful thing that it's just really wanting to tell a story and hoping to move people with that story. So it was a kind of astounding and very moving thing to be recognized in a really such a meaningful way for that piece in particular. And it seemed to happen organically as well, because you said in Yale, with the 400 people that saw it, if that would have been the end, you would have been okay with it. So anything after that was just icing on top. I, I did mean, feel that way. I did feel like I just couldn't believe that I, this story was being, and Paula had you know, figured out to enlarge, how to enlarge the story in such a massive way. It took on meaning that I never would have, I didn't know how to release even, you know, that then the import of it kept shifting and growing and expanding too. But you know, the run at each place that it had was profoundly meaningful, including at the vineyard was an incredible experience. I mean, it was, <laughs> You know, like down near Second Avenue where all those Yiddish theaters were, incredible home for it. And then that Daryl Roth, Liz McCann and Cody Lassen all had the, you know, kind of audacity and foresight to go, we're moving this piece, which isn't an obvious move, an obvious transfer to Broadway, you know, bless them for it. And then it was gonna close and Daryl ripped up the closing notice. I don't know if you remember that incredible story, but there was such a passion for the piece I mean, I feel like I was in it and also observing it an incredible experience, needless well, to say. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I find it also incredibly fascinating that the original piece was written by a man and had a, you know, became very famous and then infamous. And then right. you took the helm of it and then you and Paula, like it, the last hands that it was in and made it come to life again were in the hands of two women. And I think Paula always said, Paula always, I think, uh, would say that it was took her breath away, that it was written by a young man. And I think that was part of what so, one of many things that so moved her in the play, that he could be so inside the point of view of these women and like deeply inside it. You know, Sholem Ash was an amazing, amazing writer. 
you know, nobody else in the world could have turned that play into indecent the way that Paula did. I think I read somewhere, obviously, you talked about how you had pieces of the trial in the trial in the version that you yeah. were you were attempting to write and, and that you wrote. And then Paula, I heard her say that she she just kind of took it out. There was a draft at the very, very early stages that had trial in it, and we did a reading in my apartment, which was like one a studio where we were all sitting on top of each other. And she we it was so obvious just that it was just DOA. It was really didn't work at all. And it was because Paula had the capacity, you know, to write a scene of the cast sitting outside waiting for the verdict, you know, to, and the transcript, unlike Gross Indecency which, Indecency, which I happened to see in this very theater, you know, which the transcript itself is an incredible document, those transcripts. So this one, it's an amazing thing to read, but it isn't theatrical. Um, or it somehow doesn't work on stage in the same way. So, I, and I remember, I think it was very, very, very early, Paula said, I'm in, I just, is it okay with you if, it's, if it expands way out of New York in 1923? And again, sort of similar to her, yes, my yes, you know, was immediate. I mean, like in the middle of that sentence, of course, you know, it just, the piece got so much bigger than that, what that trial transcript had to offer. I love the, that there's an incredible scene of, uh, which kind of reminds me of, of things that are going on by, by people that are being allowed into the country and, mm -hmm. and not allowed. And yeah. there's a moment, I don't know if anybody would even know it, but I think I saw it twice at the Vineyard and then maybe twice on, on Broadway. I remember the week it was closing, I was like, I gotta I got get back, I gotta get back, I gotta get back. And do you know what scene I'm talking about? Yeah. We talk about that a little bit. It was. It's a scene in Ellis Island where um, it's sort of. It's when at the heart of Indecent is a stage manager named Lemel, mm -hmm. and it's the scene where Lemel comes from Poland over to America. And there's, you know, right at that time, sort of. It's like the early twenties, much like now. This sort of the quotas are all getting way pulled back. So. Almost nobody's allowed in, especially from Eastern Europe at that time. And sort of Eastern Europeans were thought of as kind of like these sort of dirty immigrants, you know. So the restrictions were extreme and very few people were getting through. It's a small, silent scene, but in which most people get turned away. Yeah, and then I, I can't remember who the character was, but I, it was a mother-daughter that, that mm -hmm. somebody got in and, and somebody didn't. Mm -hmm. It was all silent, but the pain of it and mm -hmm. then to kind of see what's going on in the world now about how many people can, can get in or how people are getting in, and it just mirrors to what's going on. It's so, it's so awful. I just, in the election, Paula, I remember, I think we were texting to each other was sort of when it was all becoming clear, and Paula said to me something like, our play might become much, much more important than we ever would have wanted it to be or, or hoped it would ever be to this moment. And it just, we started it so before that, the kind of horror of like this cycle of history coming back. Not that we had so, we, I think we, maybe my eyes were closed to how close we were, mm -hmm. but that we circled so back to, I mean, everything in Indecent, which felt when we started to work at it, maybe naively, but distant to a degree, became so, so immediate, you know, it was a very different experience to watch it the first time versus the closing night. Yeah, of course. And just the, to watch the, the immigrant experience now yeah. in, uh, with, you know, uh, women falling in love and the horror of, of what that was, yet it seems today like it's, it, it's no big deal. And relationship with the father and the I just is... Clearly, I'm a big fan of it. I can't gush Thank enough. You. It's and nice. I'm, uh, nice. Everything that came to you and keeps coming to you from it is, is so well deserved. And obviously, Paula deserves an enormous accolade Indeed. for it. She's an in, incre incredible. <laughs> and I'm, I'm so looking forward to what's coming up for her over the next year. But hopefully, we'll get her in the chair and we don't have to talk about <laughs> it that much. I want to talk a little bit. You did a play here. Yeah which I'd love to talk about a little bit. We, we always like to, when an artist is here that did a play at the Lortel, we, we want to talk about it and highlight it a little bit. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about it? I have such beautiful memories of this room. So it was uh, a play called Schoolgirls, 
or The Mean African Girls Play by Jocelyn Bio. And it was a, a piece about an all-girls boarding school in Ghana. And oh, I was just, I don't know, you know, it was incredible, incredible piece that had the most perfect home in this theater. It is a perfect place. It's really... <laughs> a little bit about the story, what, what... It's about this, these girls who are getting ready for this kind of, there's a beauty pageant that they're all trying out for. And this woman is coming to try to, you know, select a girl possibly to, to you know, audition for the pageant. And these girls are all in tremendous competition with each other. And a very light-skinned girl arrives at the beginning of the, of the play. You know, and her arrival just sort of throws everything into disarray. And the piece in many ways is about colorism and about this, you know, this kind of just hideous, painful idea that for some reason her light skin would equal beauty. You know, it's a kind of a really awful inheritance from this country in many ways. And really, I think the piece is, you know, asking us to look at that in a very, very critical way. It's also very, very funny. You know, one of the things that Jocelyn does so, so brilliantly is write these, you know, she's just, she's hysterically funny. So she's writing, also she sort of took a form like the Mean Girls story and, you know, places it in this world that it never is in. And that, just that act, you know, was is really wonderful and important, meaningful and important thing to do. And then I think it's, you know, it, it touched the audience in a very important and meaningful way through laughter. Yeah, speaking of which, how do you go about, well, we know how you went about choosing these past, the one you're working on now and indecent obviously, but what do you go about, what's your process of, of picking your next piece? With Schoolgirls, my agent sent me that play, one of my agents and I, I just read the first page and I was like, who is this woman? I just thought, you know, I just, I was so, I just was so amazed by what she was doing and excited by it and moved by it. I was, and I just said, if I'm the right person for her, you know, that's a real question. But if I am truly the right person, dramaturgically, I could probably help. I have questions about the structure of it and things like that. And, you know, and I just loved it. I just loved what she was doing. And then we, I don't know how many drafts later that she, Jocelyn just kept going and going and going and really, you know, reimagined the play in a massive way with unbelievable speed. But we developed that play for a long time together. I just loved being in a room with her also. Just incredibly. So she inspired you. So <laughs> is that how you go about picking all of you? I mean, there had to have been pieces that you picked that you were like, after you were like, uh, uh, maybe this is not for me or somewhere down the road of it, but what, what has to speak to you in order for you to say, you know what, I want to do this? Because clearly you're a wonderful dramaturg as well, and you know what you're talking about in terms of structure, and you got your stuff for that. So you're taking on a directing project. It's a big chunk of your mm -hmm. life. I think it's just now for me, like, does it move me? It's sort of like what I said about an actor. And then, but then maybe, and that's incredibly important to me just because of, I'll do a better job if it does. It just has to move me. And then, is it a meaningful story to tell? Like a deeply meaningful story? Do I feel it is or do, does it seem to be? And that, I think, has to, the answer has to be yes. Otherwise, it's not worth your time. Well, it's just, it just, yeah, it's, like you said, it's a tremendous amount of love and work and effort and, you know, and you kind of need to all believe, even for the sake of the writer and everybody else in that room, the director has to believe, I think, that it's a deeply meaningful story to tell. You know, otherwise you won't be a great leader. Is that what is very important to you in a rehearsal room? I mean, clearly, I mean, you have to lead a, a cast, you have to lead your artistic people around you. Do you surround yourself with a lot of the same people in terms of your scenic people, your lighting, your costumes? Are you, or are you open to all new things all the time? Both. You know, I both have like a, a group of designers that I love and adore and have worked with for a very, very long time and also find it exciting to meet new people and work with new people. And sometimes I, you know, it's, the designers are so busy that it can be, it just can be hard to consistently 
be working always with the same people. And then you discover, oh, what it's like, how incredibly powerful and exciting it is to work with somebody. You know, we're just bringing new things to each other. Before we get to questions, your relationship with Sarah Rule. Yeah. You've worked with Sarah so many times, and I love her as a playwright. Can you give us a couple of insights to her or what the relationship is like? Oh, Sarah is, um, you know, I've, I don't know how many shows I have to count, maybe, but maybe seven or so, a, lot of, a lot of pieces we've done together. And, um, you know, I feel like we share a dream language and she's a dear, 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 dear friend now too. One of my favorite, the first thing I thought of when you asked that was this, I was directing a show of hers at Lincoln Center a while ago. And in the basement, there was an empty office with like two couches. And we would go in there on the dinner break and turn the lights off and brainstorm in the dark together. Be like, what, what is wrong with that scene? It isn't working. And it was so, it just felt so intimate and so, you know, open. Kind of wandering through like the unknown. It's not easy to do on a first outing with somebody. Mm -hmm. so kind of go that deep in that sort of mysterious a way. But I think we both know each other's hearts and minds now so well. And so many directors and artists that sat in their chair say when they work so closely with people for so long, you finish each other's sentences. Mm -hmm. You become very much a family, brothers, sisters, you know, work husbands and, and wives. And, when they start something, they're like, I, I got it, I know, I know, I know how to fix it. You know, even before the, you need to, I know already. So it, it's probably comforting to work with the people that you know so well. Yeah, I mean, you know, she also just, she's so brilliant and she's so, um, her imagination is so vast that, you know, I'm running to keep up with her a lot of the time. So I just always feel like I'm learning it from, I mean, it's always, learning a tremendous amount with her. That's nice to know. That's true. You wanna uh, turn up the lights a little bit here? Here we go. I love your work. Oh, thank you. I have the highest esteem for Ash for his perseverance and resilience mm -hmm. in keeping up with that script because he was so condemned by his colleagues in the Yiddish circle mm -hmm. who told him to discard the script, not further blemish the image of the Jews and a whole bunch of reasons not to continue. I wonder, do you know any other writer who has had that kind of resilience and perseverance in the face of universal condemnation? Oh, what a good question. Do you? No. <laughs> I mean, one thing about Ash, I could say, I'm gonna maybe come back to that, because I'll think, maybe somebody else here has a good answer, but it was that like, from you know all my studies of him, that was so true to him. He did that consistently with everything. He was always writing things that were deeply controversial. It wasn't just this play through his whole life. Very dangerous for his time. Very. Just throwing things into a pot yeah. to see what, did he want it to blow up or he just wanted to see what that would be on stage? I mean, You know, I, with The God of Vengeance, it's really hard to know because it does, there is something about the play that feels like a young guy that sort of, like he was like, really did throw everything into that pot. But on the other hand, he was writing an incredibly moving, very profound story. And if you look at the fullness of his life, he really, everything he did, the meaning of it was very obvious. I mean, he was, he spent much of his later part of his life looking for sort of how Christianity and Judaism shared a common root and wanting to find that um, and name it. And Jews were furious at him for that. He was stoned on beaches, the beaches of Florida and you know, not allowed into his grandson's bar mitzvah and things. I, I don't think that was, he wanted to create controversy in that. I think really there, he really believed it was essential that we try to find our commonality. And in many ways, he was very ahead of his time. I mean, I, I think today we're still searching yeah. for that commonality. I mean, we're still always searching for a common road that we can all take together. And I think it's very familiar up here with all the different artists of every melting pot that we have here. And we all are trying to find that connection and the road we can go down together. But I don't want to be negative, but in we were talking before about a world that we're in today. Mm -hmm. It can be very volatile. It can be very scary to 
how do we yeah how do we get there yeah i mean he was asking he was asking that over and over and over and over again in all kinds of ways at a time where people really didn't want that question they weren't interested in it in the jewish community a large part of the jewish community not the entire you know but a lot a large section of that community and he he really was shunned. I just find that as such an amazing thing when you look at the DNA of the young guy mm-hmm. and see like it persisted over and over again in every step of his life. It was authentic to him. So it's hard to say he was just wanted to create controversy. You know, I think he just, he thought in this massive way that was made many, many people uncomfortable. Especially a hundred years ago, the Jewish people were extremely rigid about. Well, and it's it sort of right around the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. It was like, it's just such a, such a tricky time to yeah. be doing what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Scary. I had the pleasure of working with you at the National Theater Institute. Oh, my What's Lord. What's your name? I'm sorry. I'm Nina. Hi. <laughs> you actually worked on How to Transcend a Happy Marriage in fall of 2016. So it must have been like weeks before the election. So that right. period of time is kind of burn into my mind working on that scene with you with this very cool so hi nice to see you again i am curious about kind of your early early days of your career i know that you went to the national theater institute did you start as an actor did you have a moment where you were like i need to study directing what was that journey like for you do you have advice for people who are kind of in limbo at that part of their (laughs) creative interests that that part of trying to figure out how to just exist in um storytelling Hmm. yeah so beautifully put nice to see you again um so for me i i was a terrible actress we were talking about that before but i loved it so much and i and i did really want to be an actress for a for a while i mean for a while like after college in college and then after college until I got a role in a play where I really actually had to act every night, you know, and like do the thing. I died, I fell in love, you know, and I just- And the just, name of the play? It was called Taibla and Her Demon by Isaac Basheva Singer and Eve Friedman. And I had my equity card and I hated it. I just hated it. I didn't have any real skin between me and the experience, so I felt like every night I was like, you know, I'm dead. I just could barely move, function. And then I also, I was not good, so it was, I could feel it. Like I could, I wasn't, I knew I wasn't communicating, but I didn't know what to do. I also was, this is a good, true thing. In college, I was in Twelfth Night, and at the end of Viola's, I played Viola, her like ring speech, there was one set of hands clapping in the audience, in like a huge audience, and it was my mom, and not even my dad, you know, who was literally next to her, could like manage. <laughs> but so, it was obvious, at a certain, I had to kind of finally, well, I, I hated it, luckily, it wasn't just that I couldn't do it well. I, not, I, I just, I couldn't imagine a life doing it. It wasn't that I hated it, I really, I couldn't, I didn't have the strength to do it in many ways. But I knew I loved theater, and I knew for some kind of almost inexplicable reason, theater was my vocabulary. It was just the way I expressed myself, but I didn't know in what way, I knew I wasn't gonna be an actress, but I didn't know what I would do. So then I did kind of everything I could that anybody would let me in the room, you know, I casting director or literary intern and dramaturg, archivist on a project, you know, everything. And then eventually started assistant directing and directing scenes, directing like 10 minute plays. And I just was realized, it was just where everything synthesized and made sense. And where I felt most at home and comfortable and I felt authentic. It just felt really natural and clear. In terms of advice, I mean, I guess, you know, the, I guess the one thing I would say is if it's really, really, I think, you know, the thing that you're most called to do which is how I felt, as I said, like I really tried every morning for many, many years to think of something else and couldn't. And if that's the case, then I think the thing is don't, just have faith. I wish I could, if I, saw, if I could meet my younger self, I would probably say just calm down. You know, just relax, it's gonna be okay. 
you know, if you really persist and it is that meaningful, then you'll find a way. And it's sort of the more you can manage through that and stay, enjoy the road as kind of windy and scary as it can feel. Enjoy the unknown of it, you know, and stay authentic, you know, trusting that your own truth is enough. Yeah, you say this a lot in interviews. You say, trust in yourself and trust in the truth, which is basically what you just said. Yeah. And be your authentic self. Maybe not original, but meaningful. <laughs> it's still, I, I, don't, I agree. But I do really feel that way. I think I did, I felt I didn't have a choice. Like I could never kind of I didn't really ever have the skill of faking things. So I um I think I could have used that advice. I don't know if I would have been able to listen to it. You know, but just to, c- to calm down and trust it and think of it as a big adventure. Sort of, you know, you may not know what the destination is yet, but you can know that if you're determined, you'll figure it out. You know, bit by bit. A couple more things. We are running out of time. I'm about to get the red light, right? Two quick questions for you. Number one, what haven't you done in your art that you would like to do, you would like to conquer? Oh, you're asking that me that one right first. now? Yes, uh-huh. Oh, my God. You asked the second one, let me come okay, back. Okay, that's so, fine. Like, this um, is the kind of question that could paralyze me. <laughs> Sorry. So like, once I say it, it on there, we'll take it back. What is it about um, Off-Broadway that keeps you coming back? What is it that, that keeps it so alive for you? I mean, this world, this, like, you know, homes in New York that are making theater and telling stories, and, you know, there's such an incredible community, and it really is, when I said that I couldn't get the key and I, that the gate was locked, obviously off-Broadway that welcomed me and made a home for me, and it's been an incredible, incredible home. I mean, obviously, I'm about to open a show at New York Theater Workshop. I think that, you know, it's... The pressures on Broadway are very singular and complicated, and it's without these homes, like, what would we be doing? I mean, I can't even <laughs> really imagine it. So um, just just being in this theater is a, is a beautiful and very meaningful reminder for me, you know, of how important homes and rooms like this are to all of us. In terms of what I haven't done that I, that I want to do, I mean, part of me feels like everything. I just feel like I still have, I just feel like I still have so much to learn and there's just sort of in every direction. And, and then on the other side, and maybe life is just constantly full of opposites, I think also I've, I've been so blessed and lucky. I've also, you know, managed to do so much all, so both maybe. But That's I a think, wonderful answer. Thank it does, you. It's, it's great. Um, please thank our guests. I, I thank thank you. And that's our show. Thanks for listening to Live at the Lortel, brought to you by the Lucille Lortel Foundation. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer Eric Ostro, associate producer Jeffrey Schubart, and press by Chris Kanarik. The show's production manager is Zebulon Brown, house manager is Charles Shipman, box office manager is Daigoro Hirahata. Social media is Mia Radia. Live at the Lortel is recorded at the Lucille Lortel Theater in New York City by Bryant Falk and Abacus Entertainment. Special thanks to Nancy Hurwitz and Rebecca Kriegler. <laughs>